Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see everyone out this morning. Welcome to those of you that are online. If you're new here or you don't know me, my name is Paul Graham. I'm lead teaching pastor here at Lakeside. And um, we are beginning a new series that will take us through to the Advent season, through to Christmas, uh, on James. And uh, it's an interesting book, James. James is perhaps the earliest application of Jesus' teaching that we have written. And it's therefore written to the very earliest appearance of the church community after Pentecost. But even though it's the earliest writing to the earliest church, I think we will discover as we go through this book that very little has changed from the very first days of the church. The, the truth and the value of what the Apostle James teaches the early church is not altered for us in any way, either by subsequent scriptures that are written by the likes of Paul or Peter or John. It's not altered by time or changes in culture or different circumstances or governments that the church finds itself under. It's not changed by new philosophies that mankind has invented or new economies uh, that we live in or new social theories uh, that we adhere to. The book of James remains constant, as all scripture does, through all of these changes. The markers of true transforming faith and the challenges that face Christians and the church, and how the way of Jesus calls us as Christians to face those challenges remains the same in every circumstance and unchanged. And so in the book of James, as we sort of open it up, it's only five chapters. Uh, I, I read it at a moderate pace yesterday just to see what it is, and it's about nine and a half minutes. So it's less than 15 minutes. Even if you read fairly slow, it's not 20 minutes even. And so it's five chapters, 20 minutes. I would encourage you to read it every week. Just read it all the way through every week. And you will begin to digest the message that James is getting across. And what you will discover in the book of James is a very young church born into immediate persecution. The church is tested from outside by persecution, and it's tested from inside as well. A church that must put its faith in Jesus to work, or else suffer cracks and collapse. And I don't know if you've ever done any building, but if you build anything from a doghouse to a mansion, and you start building on uncured concrete or with green two-by-fours, What happens over time is that you might live there for a year or two and discover the cracks begin to form as things shift and heave and things shrink and expand. And that's what Peter sees is happening in the church. Cracks are forming and they need the teaching of Jesus to deal with what is happening. But first, before we get into that, uh, in future messages, we're going to first consider the man James himself. And how even James introduces himself in the very first verse is the first lesson that sets the stage for the lessons that are to come. And the question that we have to ask ourselves from this very first verse of James is, who are you really? That's what James is asking the Christians in the churches that he sends this letter to. Who are you really? What is your identity? 
And so as we prepare to study the letter over the next eight or nine weeks, we're going to need to consider briefly today some technical but important matters. It's good that we understand technically the book of James. We're going to talk about the author, going to talk about the recipients, going to talk about the occasion of the writing, the context of the writing, and then we'll conclude with the implication of James's introduction. So first of all, James 1.1 then, and I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, most of all, we need your Holy Spirit. Uh, We have textual criticism, we have the original Greek texts, we have uh, the whole council of scripture to inform us about James, Uh, we have the church history, the church fathers, but Father, what we need most of all is you and your Holy Spirit. It's by your Holy Spirit that your word becomes alive and it has transforming power. And so, Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit is here. I know that your Holy Spirit is here and that he is searching each of our hearts. He's searching my heart. And that, Father, as I speak, the Holy Spirit will be um, editing whatever needs to be edited (laughs) so that people hear uh, what you would have them hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the disper- in the dispersion, greetings. So first of all, let's talk about the author James. There are four Jameses mentioned in the scriptures um, in the New Testament. And so we want to make sure we're identifying the correct one. Who is this James that wrote this letter? The author is going to have to be a James who at the time of this writing is able to be identified simply by being called by his first name, right? So if you get a letter and it says, uh, you know, Sting, uh, this is my letter to you, or Madonna, or, you know, Bono, okay, you get it, right? Like, this is a name, it only takes the first name. The church gets a letter from James, they know who it's from. The person is so well known, James is all he needs to know, all they need to know. And there's a number to choose from. If Jesus could possibly be confused, he might be trying to keep all the different Jameses connected to him sorted out. So two of his disciples are named James, most prominently James, the brother of John. Their dad called them the sons of thunder. Peter, James, and John together held a very special place among the disciples. So that could be the James that we're talking about here. Just like John wrote a letter, just like Peter wrote letters, James may have. There's another James, James, the son of Alphaeus, the other disciple, James, and there's very little mention of the other James among the 12 disciples, apart from being named in Luke 6, 15, and he's, when he is mentioned, he's identified as the younger James, and so whenever that James is identified, he's always given sort of a marker to say, it's not that James, it's this James, it's the younger James, or it's James, the son of Alphaeus. We also have mentioned in the New Testament, James, the father of Judas. Not that Judas, the other Judas. There's two James in the disciples. There's also two Judases in the disciples. And uh, so this is James, the father of Judas, not the Judas who's Judas Iscariot. Uh, the other Judas was also a disciple. And then we can add into the, that into the mix also James, the half-brother of Jesus that we hear told of in Mark Six three. So Jesus has a lot of Jameses in his life, and I don't know what he does, you know, keeping track of all of that. But 
It's pretty unlikely that the father of a disciple is the writer of this letter of James and known to the early church by the first name only. It's probably not James the Younger. He doesn't make strong appearances in the Gospels, and so he's not necessarily, certainly not, not important, he's one of the twelve. But in terms of the Gospels and in terms of his apostolic work, he's not widely known. Um, in terms of stature in the church and among the apostles, James, the brother of John, is a good candidate. However, James is killed by Herod Agrippa in roughly 42 AD, likely before this letter is written. And if it was written before his death, then he probably would have identified himself as James, a disciple of Jesus, uh, to differentiate himself from James, the half-brother of Jesus, who would have been alive at the same time, and who is also well-known to the church. And so that leaves us with James, the half-brother to Jesus, if it wasn't any of those. And who we will see shortly was converted after the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. He rose to prominence as a leader of the church of Jerusalem, and he spoke with authority at the church's council meetings. He's likely writing this letter after the death of James the disciple, and thus he can introduce his writings with simply the name James, and it is known who he is. And so from the very early church onward, everybody understood that this letter came to the churches from James, the brother of Jesus. And the content of the letter also provides strong evidence to the close relationship to Jesus. As you read through James, you will see that it is set apart from all other letters and similar to Jesus' words in the Gospels because no other New Testament teacher apart from Jesus places anywhere near as strong an emphasis on the piety of the poor and rebuking the wealthy, which is a major theme through this letter. It's only in the words of Jesus that we have this continual compassion for the poor and assumption of their need and their redemption and rebuke of the wealthy at the same time. Paul doesn't talk about it in those terms. Peter doesn't talk about wealth in those terms. John doesn't talk about wealth in those terms. But James, again and again, returns to this idea of the rich and the poor, just as Jesus did. And so the brother here is borrowing from the half-brother Jesus in terms of his teaching style and in terms of the lessons that he is giving. From start to finish, this letter, expecting the poor to be honored, the wealthy to be humbled, Christians to bear good fruit, righteousness to be practiced by all, is just as Jesus taught. You can almost map James chapters 1 to 5 to the themes that Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. So that's the author. The author is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe in Jesus while he was his brother, um, but after the resurrection and Jesus appeared to him, he was converted and became the head of the church in Jerusalem. Who is receiving this letter? Who is he writing to? He says it's to the 12 tribes. This is another clue of how early this letter was written. James is writing to the church Uh, that the Spirit has preserved for us as Scripture, one of the first teachings written down to the church. It isn't written to a specific church, but to the whole church everywhere. It's not to the church in Colossae. It's not to the church in Galatia. It's not to the church in Thessaloniki. It's to the 12 tribes who are scattered. It's likely written within only a year or two of the death of the disciple James, around 33, 34 A.D. maybe. The church that James is writing to is still by and large comprised of converted Jews who rightly identify themselves as participants in the covenant promises of God. And so James writes to the 12 tribes, 
projecting onto the church the identity of Israel, which would have been very common early in the church. This letter is being written and read before Paul has begun his writing, probably before Paul and Barnabas even leave on their first missionary journey. So for a Jewish church leader writing from Jerusalem headquarters to address Christian churches scattered as tribes makes a lot of sense. This is a decade or more before all of Paul's teaching on how Christians fit into the covenant timeline in places like Romans 11. And so, again, we just have another early hint that this is James, the head of the church of Jerusalem, James the Jew, speaking to an early church, which is largely Jewish converts. It's important, actually, now that we do talk about timing and maybe a little bit about Paul here. Uh, Because there's so much debate about how James may or may not disagree with Paul or if James and Paul are teaching a different kind of gospel, it's worth pausing here for just a moment to get a timeline of the very early church and the context of when James is writing and what had already happened. So around 30 AD, you have the resurrection. At the resurrection, Paul appears, or Jesus appears to many it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that he appears to James and then as one untimely born to me, to Paul. And so James sees his risen brother and believes. There's Pentecost and Peter's sermon in Acts 1 and 2, Acts 3 to 4. Then in AD 30, John and Peter are preaching on a daily basis at the temple steps and in around Jerusalem in Acts 5. In the years from 30 to 33, the church is growing. You have uh, the seven helpers chosen uh, to help with the dispensation of food amongst the people of the church um, in Acts 6. And at this time, Saul, who will become Paul, is in training under the rabbi Gamaliel. Then in about 34 AD, the persecution really begins in earnest. Stephen is stoned in Acts 7. Saul begins persecuting the church and breathing out murder and taking them in chains back to Jerusalem. And the church is scattered, we're told, in Acts chapter 8. Around that same time, 34 AD, Saul converts the Damascus Road experience in Acts chapter 9. And then, after his conversion, Paul is in Arabia for three years, he tells us in Galatians 1, 17 and 18. And so there's three years from 34 to 36 where Paul is away. His persecution is stopped, but the persecution of the church does not stop under Herod and among the other rabbis. They continue to persecute the church. In 37 AD, roughly, Paul visits Jerusalem with Peter and James. He says in Galatians 1, 18, that he went after returning to Damascus, he left Damascus and went to Jerusalem to visit Peter and James only, were the only people he saw there. And there was um, fear of Paul at that time. They did not receive him warmly in Jerusalem when he came back because he had been persecuting the church for so long. But Barnabas comes to his defense and they then accept him. We see that in Acts 9. Around 38, we have Peter's vision. Sorry, I meant to put up Galatians 17 and 18 there for you so you could see what Paul was referring to. Uh, Then in 38, 39, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. That's Acts 11. Around 40 AD, Paul and Barnabas take aid to Jerusalem, and so they're back in Jerusalem. That's Acts 11, 30. Follow the bouncing ball of where Paul and Barnabas are through Acts, and presumably they see James again. And so this Paul, who was involved in the scattering of the church in the beginning, is now an apostle and is now interacting with James in Jerusalem at this time. Herod Agrippa kills James, the brother of John, 
We see in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, and Peter is imprisoned and rescued. You remember that story? Peter gets thrown in prison, and the gates fly open, he gets out, all of that stuff happens around 40. 42, Herod Agrippa kills James, the brother of John. Oh, sorry, and Peter's imprisoned. And then 43, roughly, perhaps James writes James here. This could be where James writes James is right in here at that time. Paul, it was instrumental in scattering This is a church under persecution at this time. Herod is still alive. Herod is breathing out murder against the church just like Paul was. Um, It might even make sense that James is writing it at this time while Paul is uh, away preaching the way during a missionary journey, either this time or about to leave. And so they need to compare notes after Paul returns. So it makes a little bit of sense that that maybe James was written while Paul was here or Paul was away, and Paul had not begun his teaching yet. So James is doing his teaching in this letter. And then when Paul comes back, he's like, oh, we need to compare notes here and make sure we are actually talking about the same thing. And so it makes sense that James maybe doesn't refer to Paul because Paul's teaching hasn't happened yet. Anyway, in 44, Herod dies, the word spreads, Paul and Barnabas and Mark return to Antioch from Jerusalem, and then in 45 to 48, you have the first missionary journey, where maybe James writes James here. Maybe this is where James writes James. Somewhere in this area from 43 to 48 or 49, the letter of James is written. But again, the key thing here is understanding that Paul has not begun his missionary journey to the Gentiles yet, and not begun his teaching to the Gentiles yet. And then finally, we have the reference, a point in time, a a milestone, the Jerusalem Council with James, Paul, and the apostles. When Paul returns from his first missionary journey, this discussion about circumcision and what are we teaching and, and what is the right way to teach the gospel comes up, and they actually go to Jerusalem for a council to talk it out. And Paul and James and Peter and everybody, they hash it out. Like, am I, is what I'm preaching the right thing? And they all agree at the, in Acts, 6, Acts 15, it's like, yep, this is the gospel. We're all on the same page. You may say it your way, I may say it my way, but we're preaching the same gospel. So like I said, there was some technical stuff to start with, but I want you to get where James sits in your mind as you read it through in the weeks to come. That this is a letter from James the half-brother of Jesus, who is the head of the church of Jerusalem, that it is written at a time to the early, early, youngest baby church that's under persecution immediately. It's an early application of the teaching of Jesus where he's drawing on a number of sermons and lessons and illustrations that he's probably been sharing for several years, probably through the late 30s and into the early 40s. The things that James writes in this letter, even if he's writing it in the mid-40s, are things that he has been teaching the church probably for a decade at least. James is leading the church in Jerusalem, likely from the very year of Jesus' resurrection through the persecution of Paul, that Saul participated in, and that continued in earnest at least until the end of Herod Agrippa's reign in 44. And it's, a, and it's different than Paul's work, as it is not an attempt to describe the theology of what is taking place. It is only practical application. The, the writer James, unlike Paul or Peter or John, who's writing decades later in the 50s and 60s, is not writing to a mature and established church, nor detailing the beauty of justification and adoption and sanctification and glorification as the underpinning of the transformed Christian life that we get over and over and over again in the letters of Paul and Peter, and to some extent, John as well. 
James, instead, is simply reminding an extremely young church under great trial how the Jesus they follow called them to live. In James, he, and we can see the cracks that are forming in the foundation and walls of this brand new church, and they need some immediate repair. That's what James sees. He sees this baby church that has been persecuted and persecuted and persecuted, and the cracks are forming. The cracks are forming from the trials without and from the trials within, from the assault of the enemy without and from sin within the church itself. And he wants to write to this young church and say, we need to start working on these cracks. So let's round out the context of the circumstances then by talking about this context. To the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. So James is writing to the church in its dispersion, I'm at the mother church in Jerusalem, but I know there are churches scattered now from this persecution throughout the Middle East. You may have heard the word as diaspora used in this special way. It's the original Greek word for scattering. The apostle Peter addresses his first letter almost exactly the same way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So just as with James's reference to the 12 tribes, we see here Peter's connection to the exile. As Israel were people of exile in strange lands, so are Christians in the church exiles and scattered into strange lands. And so apart from any specific and intentional persecution, one thing we always need to keep in mind as the church, even today, because it hasn't changed, is that the church exists in a continual state of testing simply by being called to live differently than every earthly kingdom in which the church is called to exist, in all times and in all places. In other words, there's this background noise of testing that exists simply by being the church in any place other than heaven. Friction will always exist. There will always be pressure on the church. And we need the lessons of James just for that. James is writing furthermore to the very directly persecuted early church, assaulted by religious and civil authorities, hunted and jailed by people of their own culture and family, hunted by the government and by foreign powers. A church, like all churches everywhere, who are being tested by their own temptation and sin. The church also has a spiritual enemy who's always testing our allegiance as well. And so the context of this letter is testing and trials and persecution that are producing the cracks that James can see. And while pointing out the cracks, James is offering the repair plan. He's encouraging them to put their faith to work. Here's how you do it, Christians. Here is what this letter James is about. It's about renovating your faith. It's about putting your faith to work, to repair the cracks, and to build a solid church and a solid spiritual life. The solution to the faltering and to the persecution is true and active faith. And James is guiding them from teaching in the words of Jesus, as we'll see, into the active faith that produces joy and hope and purity and steadfastness and wisdom and equality and unity and charity and contentment and perseverance. This is what James wants to see in the church, and that's not what he's seen. He's worried that it's crumbling a little at the corners. Well, what about James then? Let's circle back to our author in closing. That looks weird. There we go. James. Well, we've determined that James is the half-brother of Jesus. James. He's among the most prominent leaders in the early church. 
James is the head of the mother church in Jerusalem. James is one who the apostles gather to. Even Peter and John and Paul come to James with questions of theology and practice. That's who James is. He's not nobody. But who does James say that he is really? James, a servant of God. And of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting, eh? It's not James, you know, the brother of God incarnate. It's not even a servant of Jesus, who more than almost anyone, James could claim to be on a first-name basis with the Messiah. I mean, James probably pushed Jesus out of bed in the morning and stole his Cheerios. (laughs) Right? So if anybody could make a claim to some kind of earthly connection to the brother of God, (laughs) you know, to the servant of Jesus, James could make all the fleshly claims that anyone else could make and more. But all these fleshly claims that James could make have no meaning at all in the church. That's not his identity anymore. And he opens up this letter, and we'll see over the next few weeks that James is writing to Christians who themselves are refusing to lay down their earthly identity when they enter the doors of the church. Yes, the church is under persecution, But a lot of the troubles that we are going to see are actually coming from within. James sees a church where people's identity is not being a bondservant to Jesus Christ. Christians coming into the church and refusing to leave their wealth at the door or leave their titles at the door. They refuse to leave their ambitions and allegiances at the door of the church. They refuse to leave their worldly wisdom behind. These are Christians that are bringing in all of their prejudices and all of their strivings for power, all of their worldly wisdom, all their aspirations and jealousy. They're bringing them all into the church. And when the trial comes and the testing comes, these Christians are unable to find the unity and grace and patience and humility that they need in order to withstand those trials. And so even the very introduction that he gives to this letter is a lesson to the church that is scattered. James is essentially putting them on notice right away by introducing himself, James not as the brother of Jesus, James not as the servant even. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right away, he's putting them on notice. You're not going to understand the way of Jesus that I'm reminding you of in this letter unless you get my first lesson. You've got to lay down all these earthly identities that you have. You have to leave all of that stuff at the door of the church when you come in. I'm James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant, doulos, literally a house servant who is bonded to serve under contract, essentially, for seven years, unless it was with the royal household and then it was for 14 years. But a doulos was committed to the household, a bondservant, to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, Kyrios, Master, Jesus, the Anointed One, Jesus, the Messiah. I am a bondservant to God and to the Master of my life. 
Jesus Christ. And if it's going to be hard for anybody to say that, it's going to be a younger brother saying that about his older brother, right? You know, that I am the servant of my brother who I kicked out of bed, whose Cheerios I stole, who I thought was literally a crazy person for most of his life until my eyes were opened, until I saw the resurrected Jesus. And now, I'm not James, the head of the church of Jerusalem. I'm not James, the brother of Jesus. I'm not James, any of those things. I'm just James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first lesson to this church that is scattered. James is asking us, what identity badges or what identity baggage from the world are we dragging through the doors of the church every week? What is it that we sort of swagger in here with and refuse to lay down at the cross? Do we come in with our pride, with our satisfaction in our wealth, our worldly wisdom because we think we're so clever? Do we kind of walk in here in the security of our power, our ambition? Do we bring in our allegiances with the world in here? Do we bring all of that in here with us? Or are we truly servants of Jesus? Or are we servants of self? Because the testing of the church is always present, and trials and persecutions will come on the church and on your life. And when they do, it's as easy as James to see the churches that are cracking and quarreling and crumbling, and what churches will persevere to the end and which churches won't. We can look around right now in our North American culture, and we can see the cracks appearing in various churches and various denominations. Sometimes the cracks are so wide, we wonder how they're even still standing as churches. The lessons of James are for Lakeside and for you and for me to reveal what will be exposed when our faith is tested. Will cracks be exposed or will character be exposed? With God's mercy and grace and our faith put to work, my prayer is that at Lakeside and with each of our lives as Christians, when the pressure comes, it will be steadfastness and patience and perseverance and hope in Jesus Christ. Because like the author of this letter, that is our identity. That's who we are, really. We are bondservants. We are slaves to the master, Jesus Christ. And he's a good master to be a servant of. Your identity in this building, your identity with these people, your identity in the community of Christ is nothing other than that. And as we go through James, we'll start to unpack how the trials and persecutions come. And James will show us what is revealed when our faith is tested. And how we put the instruction of Jesus to work in renovating our faith. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the mirror that your text is. That we hold up the scripture to our lives and we don't go away unchanged. Because when we look at the mirror of scripture... It changes us. We don't reflect on it. It reflects on us. And so, Lord, I pray for the next eight weeks as we open up the book of James that we will really ask ourselves that question. Who are we really? Are we able to lay down all of our badges and our baggage, our allegiances, the things we put our hope in, the way we think we identify? Can we leave all those things at the door when we come in here and hopefully not pick them up again when we go out? And can we learn, like James, to simply be your servant, 
and to recognize that we are a servant among many servants whose hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, that we would be able to be a church that is patient and steadfast through the trials that we face and through the persecution that comes. And that as we are tested, we will not be found wanting, but we will be found as Christians with renovated and strong faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.